Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 36. Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 36. I don't know what it is about the strings, but after I hear them play hymns, it just makes me want to punch the devil in the face, you know? Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, Matthew 14, 22 to 36 is where we're going to be this morning. When I was young, I was discipled by a man who is 66 years older than me, and um, he used to tell me all the time when it came to possessions that they have and all the things that they had in their house. He used to collect a lot of different things, and he, said, he always said to me, um, we started out with nothing, and we've got most of it left. Uh, and... <laughs> There's a truth to that in the the sense that over the course of our life, we begin to amass a lot of different things, a little trinkets here and there. And some of these trinkets come to be very important to us. Uh, They have a lot of value, and or at least we ascribe to them a lot of value. Uh, We place a lot of importance on them. We work very hard to possess them. And then one day, we get a call from the doctor. And none of it seems to matter anymore. After that call, it seems like, what did I work all my life to accomplish? It has the ability, suffering does, especially health-related problems, to put all of life into perspective and to suddenly realize Perhaps what we've missed the whole time. That there are only a handful of things that actually matter. And almost everyone that's lying in a hospital bed, even at this very moment, will tell you, if you don't have health, you have nothing. When the storms of life come, they have a way of focusing our attention on the only things that really matter. In our passage this morning, the disciples are going to find themselves in a very literal storm, in the midst of a sea that they're very familiar with, and they don't know what to do. Now, this story is a very familiar one to all of us. Jesus comes walking on the water. We've probably heard number, a number of sermons preached on this passage And we're very familiar with this text. But I think the reality of this passage is contrasting. Matthew is demonstrating for us the difference in what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus. What it actually takes when the storms of life come to be a disciple of Jesus. He's going to do that by contrasting the doubt of a disciple, namely Peter, with the crowd in the Gennesaret. Let's look at Matthew chapter 14. Verses 22 and following. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, Walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! 
They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for our reading of this very familiar passage to us, that our familiarity would not breed contempt as we read this text but that you would give us fresh eyes to see it, fresh hearts ready to hear it and understand it and apply it. I pray that you would allow us to be changed, having thought of you as more powerful than anything in our world, as better than anything we could possibly ever hope for. But we can only have that insight through the help of your Holy Spirit, so we ask for it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage is probably the most familiar uh, to the majority of people in this room. And I find that sometimes when it comes to passages like that, those are the most difficult ones to preach. Because many people in the crowd are going, well, I've heard this sermon on this passage 1,500 times in my life. What is this joker going to tell me that I haven't heard before? As an example of that, I'm preaching a sermon about Jesus and Peter walking on the water. And the sermon is not titled... Either get out of the boat or keep your eyes on Jesus, which we all know are the only acceptable titles for sermons on this passage. I hope that what I'm going to tell you in this sermon isn't entirely different than the sermons that you have heard before. I do think that we should step out on faith. The Bible tells us as much that we live by faith. The righteous live by faith. And I do think that we should keep our eyes on Jesus. The Bible tells us that too in Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. But at the same time, I think this passage has something profound to say about the journey of a disciple and the doubt that we encounter along the way. And this morning, I want you to see the difference between the two groups in focus in this story. First, the disciples, mainly Peter, but the disciples as a whole. Then second, the crowds of the Gennesaret. And first thing I want you to consider is the disciples' doubt. Just take a look for a second at the the disciples' doubt. In this story, most of us can easily relate to the disciples who are on a boat in the middle of a storm and they have their wits scared out of them by someone walking on the water. Which one of us wouldn't be terrified if we were to see that? Now, in the previous passage, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 families. He's just multiplied bread miraculously for 5,000 families. 
And in the Gospel of John, what we find is at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, the group in that crowd gather together and want to make Jesus king. I mean, why wouldn't they? I think we would probably want him to be king too if we had experienced that kind of thing. They recognize that what Jesus has done is a miraculous act. And so if they're going to overthrow the king over that land, in their case, Philip, but also Herod is over there as well, and many others are king over that land as it's divided up. If they're going to overthrow those rulers and authority with anyone, don't you think it should be someone who's able to multiply bread from a few crumbs? Don't you think it should be someone who's able to feed us? Don't you think it should be someone who is able to protect us from any kind of persecution that the kings might do in retaliation? Don't you think that's who it be? Well, it looks like Jesus makes a really good candidate for exactly that. There's no persecution that could possibly come to them. They feel that the Messiah uh, who is on our team could not overcome. So let's get together and let's make him king. Now, Matthew doesn't include this part in the story, but he does begin verse 22 with this scene that says immediately he shoveled them off into a boat. Jesus is hurriedly getting them from the shore off into boat into a boat. Now, why is he hurrying them out to sea? Well, most likely he's protecting them from their themselves because we learn in the book of John that the people want to make him king. It's not beyond a reasonable question that the disciples are also whipped up into this frenzy of deciding to make Jesus king. Let's do it right here and right now. And so it seems as though Jesus is separating the disciples from the rest of the crowd by basically saying, you better get in that boat like your mom would tell you. You better get in that boat. I'll deal with you later. I'll scare you have to death. <laughs> Now, we know that the disciples don't fully grasp who he is. As evidence of that, it's not going to be until they get into the boat after Jesus walks on water and after Peter has his episode that they begin to understand, surely this is the Son of God. Even back when, they, when he calmed the storm, they said, who is this? Here they are decided that this is the Son of God. And it's the first time in the Gospel that they're clearly pointing this out and the disciples are calling this out. Point being, as of this moment in time, they're only beginning to grasp the magnitude of His power and His authority, even though they've seen Him heal tons of people. They don't realize that He doesn't need anyone to make Him King except God the Father, which will happen at His resurrection. And Jesus is going to tell us about that in the Great Commission, in the passage that we call the Great Commission, but that's not for now. So regardless of why he puts them in the boat, the disciples and Jesus are separated from each other for a period of time, and Jesus goes up onto a mountainside to pray by himself, and the disciples are traveling by boat out in the Sea of Galilee to the land of the Gennesaret, which they will eventually end up in in verse 34. So for Jesus, he had been intending to get by himself and pray for some time now, but remember, was interrupted by the crowds as he stepped off the boat the first time. There he teaches them, assuming, and he, he feeds them and takes care of them. 
them. And now finally, he has an opportunity to get alone and pray and uh, we assume rest as well. Now, just like in the last passage, Matthew gives us some very helpful details here in verse 24 when he tells us about the situation that's going on. He says the disciples were a long way from the land. Now, the exact language that Matthew uses there is the boat was by this time many stadia from the land. Now, it's been translated a long way for our sakes because we don't really know what a stadia is much less many of them. We certainly don't, doesn't translate well to us. Well, a stadia is roughly about 200 yards. So picture two football fields. But they are many stadia from the shore. So many uh, stadia, two, two football fields times however many. They're away from the shore. Now, the reason why that's important is because there is always an effort, it seems like, in society today, especially, to read the miraculous accounts of Jesus in a naturalistic way. As if Matthew's not really expecting us to believe that Jesus actually walked on water. Surely you you can't believe that Jesus actually did this, right? People like John Derrick, distinguished professor of the University of London, and then eventually Oxford. No doubt his English accent persuades a lot of people in a crowd. He sought to explain this event as merely Jesus walking on a hidden sandbank in the Sea of Galilee. Of course, it begs the question, a couple of questions, how a group of men who have grown up fishing on this lake wouldn't know of a massive sandbank that was leading from the shore all the way out to where they were just under the surface of the water. Surely they would have to dodge it many times with their boats over the years. Also, how did Peter walk on the bridge and then sink? That seems to be very interesting. And if this was the case, then Jesus is not asking Peter to come out and walk to him on water. He's playing a practical joke on him which I admit would be kind of funny, but hardly worth putting inside the text of the Scriptures. And certainly the disciples don't pick up on this because after he gets in the boat, they bow down and worship him, recognizing that there is something miraculous that has taken place. So in case there is anyone in this room that is hoping for an explanation of this story that follows a naturalistic interpretation... Let me say it clearly. There are no naturalistic interpretations of the miracles of Jesus. He literally walked on the water in a way that demonstrated His divine power over nature uniquely. In a way that could demonstrate that He alone possesses the kind of power that would enable someone to walk on the surface of the water. Now, he also gives, temporarily at least, this experience to Peter. So, as far as we know it, there are only two men in history that have ever walked on water. If you're going to explain Jesus' miracles in a naturalistic way, then you basically have to conclude that Matthew and the rest of the Gospel writers are simply lying to us. Because there is no way to take their words as true and interpret them any other way. At EBC, we believe that the scriptures that we read and study several times a week 
in our gathering, in our corporate gatherings, are inerrant in their original manuscripts. They are infallible in their teachings so that they rightly, when they're rightly understood, they never lead to error. It is not something that we are ashamed of or that we murmur or mutter under our breath. And while there may be questions that we don't know the answer to or mysteries that we cannot totally explain or understand, the problem, any problem that would be encountered in the text, we believe, lies inside our own fallen minds, not with the text of Scripture. Suffice it to say that Jesus walked on water without the aid of a hidden sandbar, without inflatable shoes, without some surfboard that was invisible under the surface of the water or any such thing. Matthew tells us that this was during the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So it was sufficiently dark to be absolutely as creepy as possible. And so the disciples have been battling these waves for some time. You know they have to be exhausted by now. We're not sure when they got in the boat, how late it was. We don't know any of those details, but we do know that they have been battling this for some time. They are experts on the water, and the distance that they have to travel is not that far. In fact, the distance could actually be walked quite easily. So what is probably happening is the disciples are actually just transporting their boat from one place to another. It's not that they have that far to actually go that merits a trip on the sea, but they're taking their boat there um, to get it to where they need to go. But it's obvious by this point, the wind is, has battle, battled against them and they need some sort of help. And once they see Jesus walking on water, they are, of course, thinking that this is absolutely not possible. So they come up with the only possible solution that, that it might be, and they think that it's a spirit of some kind, that it's a ghost that is coming to them. Now, we would probably think it's a ghost too, I'm assuming, or something else, maybe, our imaginations. But you have to know, in a first century context, Jews are not big fans of the sea. Now, a lot of them make their living on the sea, but because they make their living on the sea, a lot of them die on the sea. And so they are not fans of the sea. The sea is where violent storms happen, where ships sink, where you drown and die. The sea is what God is going to get rid of in the new earth. The sea will be no more, right? He says, so the Jews are anticipating that day. The sea is not a friendly place to be. There's a widely held belief amongst Jews of that day that evil spirits lived in the seas and that those had, that had drowned before haunted the waters. So when you were on the waters, uh, they could get you, all right? They could sneak out and grab you, I guess. Needless to say, this time of night, evil spirits out on the sea, The wind is against them. The disciples are terrified. And in verse 27, Jesus responds to their fear by saying, Take heart, it is I. Literally, I am. Do not be afraid. But this isn't enough for old Peter. Now, you got to love Peter. Peter gives me a lot of hope. Now, it's difficult to know exactly why Peter thought that the burden of proof for Jesus would be, let me walk on the water to you. But for some reason, that is the burden of proof that he chose. I know if I were in the boat, 
That would also be my burden of proof, mainly because I want to walk on water too. And I'm assuming that's probably what Peter is doing here. But will you just stop for just a moment and consider what's happening? We like to be hard on Peter because he can tend to be a little loud. He can tend to be a little upfront. He can be a little quick with his opinions. He can sometimes be too quick to speak up. And in a minute, we're going to see him nearly die. But Peter also walked on water. I've never walked on water. Peter actually got out of the boat. Had the courage to do that. Here his master is standing in front of him on the water. So just think about that for a moment. The most basic laws of physics. I drop something, it falls. I throw a rock in the water, it sinks. I jump in the water, I don't stay on the surface. I go to the bottom. The most basic laws of physics are all bending around Jesus at this moment. And Peter wants to jump into it. There's some courage in that. Peter's at least confident enough that he knows that by Jesus' command, the water is going to be still beneath his feet. Think about that moment for just a second. Putting your feet over the edge of the boat. I doubt you do a cannonball. Makes me think that probably what I'm going to do is just dip my toe in for just a bit just to see. But not Peter. Couple that with the fact that a sea is much like, a, like we would view a cemetery for them. In the middle of the night, and here he goes, walking after him. Peter exercises great faith at first to even get out of the boat and walk over to where Jesus was. And now, obviously, him walking over to where Jesus was leaves some distance between him and the boat. And that's when things start to turn. You can imagine it. Peter, at first, has a big smile on his face as the bottom of his foot touches the wet surface of the water. But this time, it has no give to it. At this time, it feels a lot like wet cement underneath his foot. He walks over to Jesus and stares him in the face. And he takes a brief pause. But then the smile begins to fade from his face. As he starts to look around, all the spit leaves his mouth. He knows that the boat is a good distance behind him. He sees the waves crashing in to him and all around him probably feels the mist of the water hit his legs and he is suddenly very much aware of what a bad idea this was. The Sea of Galilee is deep. And though he's grown up on the sea his whole life, he's probably not a great swimmer. Plus, in this storm, there's a great chance that he'll sink to the bottom. His name does mean rock, after all. 
And it says he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Which Jesus does and asks him, well, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? There's a taboo word amongst Christians that we don't often talk about. Doubt. Peter's guilty of doubt here. The book of Jude actually exhorts us to be patient with those who doubt. Knowing that it's a quite normal response. But when we struggle with our faith or when we as Christians doubt, we might be tempted to think that there's something wrong with us. But let's dispel some of the myths about doubting just by looking at this scene here with Peter. And when I say the word doubt, most of us are going to think about the kind of doubt that leads, to, leads us to question the very existence of God or perhaps even the works of Jesus. His, his death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His miracles, and, and so on. This would lead us to something like the position of the atheist who says, there is no God. Or perhaps the agnostic who says, I don't know whether there is a God or not. Well, that is certainly a kind of doubt, but I don't think it's the kind of doubt that Jesus mentions here or the kind of doubt that Peter is actually dealing with at this moment. Remember, a second and a half ago, he was standing flat-footed on water. And Jesus, the one who called him to place his trust in him, is still standing on top of the water. Now, if you could take a time out and you could just ask Peter at that very moment, do you believe in God? I think you would get a resounding yes, that he would say so confidently. However, as it turns out, doubt is also found when Peter stops for a moment to consider all the possibilities. For Jesus, doubt is simply Peter considering what could be rather than what currently is. Considering what could be rather than what currently is. He is currently standing on the water's surface in front of a man who heals people by the legion and multiplies bread for multitudes. But he could be overcome by the wind and the waves. R.T. France puts it this way, doubt denotes not so much uncertainty or unbelief, but a practical hesitation, wavering, being in two minds. Peter's problem was not so much lack of intellectual conviction as the conflict between the evidence of his senses and the invitation of Jesus. Peter's doubt has more to do with fear. Fear of the wind and the waves. Now when we think about doubt that way, when it's fear and anxiety, I wonder if any of us have doubted. If I asked for a show of hands, every hand would be raised. Have you ever doubted by being fearful or anxious? Every hand would be raised. 
And the, one, the hands that weren't raised struggle with lying, so we'll cut them some slack. As it turns out, our fallen nature is prone to fear and anxiety. Fear, it turns out, is what happens when God asks a fallen people to live by faith, and anxiety is what happens when they try to. This is part of the problem with the charge that I get from thousands of sermons on Jesus walking on water that end in, you got to get out of the boat. Well, the problem is that the righteous live by faith. And that means that I'm currently on the water. And the problem is, I have no boat. Jesus has gotten rid of the boat. I would quite happily jump in the boat if I had one. Some sense of security. But it turns out that all I've got is Jesus or drowning. And I see the storms all around me, but I've only got Jesus or drowning. Now, some in our culture think that drowning is a great alternative to suffering. But do you also see that faithlessness is not solved by sight? Peter's doubt is not solved by sight. He sees just fine. He knows Jesus is standing on the water. He knows he's standing right there in front of him. Peter is watching the laws of physics wrap around Jesus and not apply to him. He's seen it happen. It's also not solved by experience. He is standing on the water at that moment. And still he begins to doubt. Still he begins to sink. The only way out is Peter's cry. Lord, save me. Is it any wonder that inside the church we struggle so much with fear and anxiety and depression and simultaneously the spiritual discipline we also struggle with the most is prayer. Do you think that that's any coincidence? If I sit down with somebody who is struggling mightily with fear or anxiety or depression, they'll either say to me, preempt me, before I even say anything, they'll either say to me, I know I should pray, but... And I've yet to hear them actually finish that sentence. It just sort of trails off. Or sometimes they say, I've tried to pray, but... And they don't finish that sentence either. But what exactly do you mean that you've tried to pray? It's not Advil. You can't take 25 milligrams of prayer and call me in the morning. That's not how it works. The question is not, have you tried to pray? It's, why did you ever stop? 
We are commanded, pray without ceasing. The question is not, have you tried it, but why did you stop? See, anxiety is one of the multitude of cues that we have whose good purpose is to bring us to cry out, Lord, save me. Over and over and over again. And what, it, what happens is it turns out also that it's true of all of our trials. All of the storms in our life, if you will. So for the Christian, they are ultimately faith-producing. They have a way of focusing our attention on the only things that matter. And most of the time, our first instinct is to try to muscle our way to the top of the water or to look for some naturalistic solution only to find that the one who is standing on the water at that moment is offering his hand. And he is the only possible solution to salvation. I've dealt with depression. And I hope I never have to go through that again. It is the darkest, most awful time in my entire life. And I can say that confidently. I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. And it's a particularly tough trial because it tempts you to make peace with darkness like nothing else I've ever seen. You probably know someone struggles with depression. The difficulty, because you want to tell them, well, just cheer up. Give me a call when anything goes wrong. I'll be here to help you. The problem is, the darkness is the first sense of warmth that they have felt in forever. So the desire to get out of it isn't there. So believe me, I'm not minimizing the seriousness of fear and anxiety and depression. I'm also not saying that medications on occasion, should that be the route that you're on, have no use whatsoever. I'm not, not saying that either. They may at times be very necessary depending on the trial and the nature of the trial you're going, on, going through, especially if it's biological or chemical or various other things. But I would say in America, we think everything can be solved by a pill. Are you here today without Jesus? Friend, let me tell you, you are neck deep in sin and you may not even know it. You are drowning and maybe you've made peace with it. But what Scripture tells us is that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So there are no good works that can possibly save you. Any more than Peter can lift up his foot and manage to get it on top of the water and stand back up. It simply will not work. 
If you feel overcome by the burden of sin, then you need only profess faith in Jesus Christ, in the only one that can save you. And as it turns out, we have a word in this very gospel at the very beginning that Jesus Christ came for this very purpose so that he might save his people from their sins. You notice that when Peter goes down and he says, Lord, save me, what he finds is not a ridiculing Savior who lets him sit there for a little bit and let him suffer in his pain. You don't find a Savior who goes, yeah, you should have listened to me, didn't you? Shouldn't you? I bet you're wishing you would have now. Immediately, it says, Jesus reached down and saved him. The same would be true of you. But the disciples realize who Jesus is. After seeing this miracle, they all get in the boat and the wind ceases. The second time that they've seen Jesus calm the wind and have some miraculous victory over nature like this. And they get it, it seems. They say, truly, you are the Son of God. They have been neck deep in water vicariously through Peter. Jesus has saved them again vicariously through Peter. And they recognize that true salvation is only found in Christ. But you see what happens in the next scene. It says immediately they get to the land of the or land at Gennesaret, which is not far away from where they are. And notice the response of the people there. The men of that place, they recognize who Jesus is and they immediately begin calling their sick and bringing out all their sick to them. And what is their response? We've seen this response before back in chapter 9 with the hemorrhaging woman who comes to Jesus if only to touch the fringe of his garment and be, that she may be made well. And there she gets called out for her faith. So what we know because we've heard this before, is that when the, when the people in Gennesaret come out with the same response of this woman, that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and be made well, and they begin bringing out all their sick, that this is also a sign of incredible faith. So we go from the doubt of Peter now to the faith of the people in the Gennesaret. But you understand why? These people are overrun with illness and death. You understand, they're already neck deep in water. They don't even need Jesus' hand. If they can just get close enough to touch the hem of his garment, they'll pop right up to the top of the water. They're already neck deep in it. They are already focused. God has already removed all forms of dependence outside of him. They see Jesus and they know their day has finally come. But you see, there's a call here to us as we look at the disparity between the two groups, the disciples, especially Peter and the people of the Gennesaret, there is a call to the disciple, to you and me, that although our natural human perspective and response is prone to fear and doubt and anxiety and depression, to instead rely on the supernatural power of God to save calling out to him in dependence, Lord, please save me. 
in the trials that you're going through. Currently, or maybe evaluating the trials of the past. Are you considering what might be the outcome? Is your mind consumed by what could be? By what might take place down the road? It's a bit like searching WebMD for your ailments. Done this before? Don't do it. Prognosis is always death. Or are you relying on the one who is? Question, has he saved you in the past? Then maybe he has warranted from you enough trust that he will do it in the future. Because as a professor once told me, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. Though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. Has he saved you in the past? Maybe, just maybe, he gets a little bit of credit for the future. A little bit of trust. But let's play it out for just a second. Let's say that WebMD is right for a change. Let's say that it is death. Then what? For some, this world is the only good they will ever know. And if that's true, then you should beg, borrow, and steal to preserve this life. If you really think that this is the only good you will ever know. But for us, for the Christian, something greater awaits. Can we really get to the place like Paul, who says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain? Gain? Gain. Paul, have you tasted pizza? Gain? Really? Gain. See, he says... If I live, I get to go on doing ministry. And that's good. That's your benefit. That's my benefit. I enjoy doing that. I love it. But to die is to be with the Lord, which is far better. So even if we were to play out the wildest of circumstances, the waves come up and crash over you and Take you out, which for all of us one day will come. It's at that moment that we'll wonder why was I worrying? Why was I anxious? 
It's at that moment that we'll wish we could go back and tell ourselves they're standing on the water. You should really just have faith. Just believe. It's going to be okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that there are some in this room that are suffering mightily. And they may even be thinking there are worse things than death. And there are kinds of suffering that are terrible that they may be going through. Lord, I pray for relief for them. For the ones who are underwater in trial right now and who are considering that an end to the struggle might just be breathing in the sea. I pray that you would give them perseverance. Pray that you would give them some sort of comfort away from the darkness. Some sort of calling back to the light. Whether it's the sound of my voice or this prayer or the sermon or the songs or some member that catches them on the way out or, or whatever that there would be some call that they can't turn down. That they would feel a sense within them. The Spirit struggling for one last ounce of hope that you would give it to them. Pray for all of those in this room who are perhaps on the other side of a great trial. That you would give us long memories, long, long memories of what it was like when we were in the midst of the trials. So that our trials might not be only for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. Push our people toward those that are suffering. To love them and care for them and pray for them. That we might not be the people that are callous or lack empathy. But desire to see the gospel practically lived in someone's life. And that we may celebrate the day when that person has freedom from this kind of darkness and anxiety and fear and depression. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.